Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. Our topic is iron, and we're going to be taking your calls and questions throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com. Now, when I mentioned iron, I'm not talking about equipment here. I'm talking about the nutrient. And just had a great discussion today with a couple of people from the soybean breeding world. And we were talking about some of the iron deficiency chlorosis issues that they see across the country and uh, just some probability work that one of the soils labs had done. We're seeing a lot more predictive analysis used in agriculture of figuring out where problems are likely to occur. And it's definitely going to help in the management of crops going forward. It's also helping in varietal selection. So breeders can target areas with high probabilities of issues to really get a good test. One example, and this was about standability, uh, one of the breeders said, yep, I was in this trial in Missouri and the only variety that stood was this one. (laughs) And he goes, that's how confident I am that this one can handle that situation. And, you know, there's so many different things that can happen out there. You can't be in every possible situation, but it is pretty good to see these breeders and and others in the industry working really hard to get good trial work done. So we don't have many problems on the farm and that's been, been really nice. All right. Let's talk specifically about iron just a little bit, because I had a discussion with my 16 year old son just this week about iron and we were talking about chemistry and I was just looking at his grades and checking things out and And he said, you know, I really like chemistry. This has been a fun class for me. And I said, that's awesome. He goes, yep, test me. Test me on any nutrient. I can tell you exactly, or any element, he said, what what the... um, uh, how many positive charges it has, that kind of thing. And I said, all right. So I thought about a trick one, and I said, iron. And he's like, Dad, come on. That's a trick question. You know that. That's got either two positive charges if it's the ferrous form, or it has three positive charges if it's the ferric form of iron. And I said, you're absolutely right. And that is so important because I use this every week in my job. And he goes, what? I don't understand. I, how do you use that information about iron and that it has a positive two or a positive three charge in your job. And I said, okay, well, here's a problem that we've got in soybeans. And we actually had a tree in our front yard this past summer that was showing symptomology that looked like iron deficiency chlorosis looks in soybeans. The leaves were yellow, yet the the veins were still green. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who's an arborist And I said, I've got this tree and it looks like this. And he said, yeah, you've got an iron problem. And I said, well, how do I fix that? And he's like, well, you cut the tree down and put another tree in, uh, but pick a different kind of tree that can handle this and we can do some soil remediation and whatnot. I'm like, no, it's a big tree and it's in my front yard. I can't lose this tree. And he said, all right, we could do an iron injection. And within a couple of weeks, you should be able to see a difference in the tree. So I said, you know what? Let's give it a shot. And we did, and it greened up in a couple of weeks. Now, it was still suffering from drought and other things that we had going on, uh, which that's that's management, and I should have been after it watering those trees a little bit sooner. But, but anyway, it's very interesting that that tree responded to iron just like our crops do. So back to iron deficiency chlorosis in soybeans, what we see a lot is there's plentiful amounts of iron in the soil in most cases. 
when we did trial work on 650 farms. We pulled tissue analysis and we found enough iron in those tests. Well, wait a minute. How can the leaves be yellow and we have iron deficiency chlorosis going on if there's plenty of iron? Well, it was in the wrong form. So the iron that was there had converted to the uh, ferric form, the three positive charge form, because the soil pH was high. And when that soil pH gets high, we see iron becoming unavailable, and this is part of that. So we've got to deliver iron in a form that the plant can use, where it has two positive charges instead of three. So we see the EDDHA, ortho-orthochelates. I know, that's a lot of letters and a lot of words. Let me say that again. EDDHA, ortho-orthochelates of iron. They can deliver iron in the available form, even in the presence of high pH, high salts, high carbonates, high nitrates, all those problems that we have in these iron deficiency chlorosis spots. The problem is they're not cheap. They're going to cost you $25 or $30 an acre in most cases, and you need to do it at planting time if you want to impact yield. Could you use those later and green plants up? Absolutely, but you've already lost yield. So you've got to get after that on the early side. Now, if you've seen iron deficiency chlorosis before in your ground, you know where those spots are. You can target it with specific management. You can pick varieties of soybeans that can handle it better or hybrids of corn that can handle it better. And we see there's a lot of difference with the corn breeders too. Some are really watching high pH tolerance. Others are not paying much attention to that. So it's something to talk to your corn supplier about too. Hey, I've got high pH soils here. Which corn hybrids are going to do a little better for me in those situations? Now, the other thing that I'd say is this. Most of those iron deficiency chlorosis areas are poorly drained. Not all, but most of them. And it's caused the pH to be high. It's caused the buildup of things that should leach out of the soil, like nitrates and some of these carbonates and so forth and salts. So fix the drainage out there. You can save yourself some money by not having to apply the expensive EDDHA ortho ortho chelate iron products. And you also help yourself out in terms of yield in that now you can pick any soybean variety, not just the, the very few that can really handle these tough spots where it's difficult to get the right form of iron into your plant. So lots of information there. We'll talk more about iron. It's uh, It's got a lot of important uses in your lawn, in grass crops. Uh, even got some stories to tell you about soil and subsoil on our farm from this year. So we'll talk more about iron on today's show. We'll also be taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Or you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. You're listening to the Ag PhD Radio Show. We'll be right back after this. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. 
Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Conditioning low-moisture beans to 13% can add semi-loads to your bottom line. And with our 13 for 13 year-end special, make 13% beans possible with 13% off an end-zone bin system. Use promo code 13 for 13 at farmshopmfg.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds. Even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your Burndown. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're talking iron on today's show, and I'm not talking equipment. I'm talking about the nutrient that our crops desperately need. Now, we don't need huge quantities like we need of nitrogen or phosphorus or sulfur or potassium, those kinds of nutrients, but we need some. And if we don't get it, our crop suffers, our yield suffers, our profitability suffers, This is a really important nutrient for us. We're going to talk about that on today's program. We're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And you can always email us as well, radio at agphd.com. Let's head out to Colorado. We've got Ron Meyer with Colorado State University. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. All right, so we're talking about iron, and I told a couple of stories to start the show off uh, about my son's chemistry class and how he thought he wasn't going to need to use that chemistry later in life, and I we just started talking about iron. I'm like, I use this every week. We talk about this all the time with farmers. How about in Colorado? Is iron a big topic out there with farmers? It is, yeah, mostly due to our soil pH levels, and so we uh, have lots of pH levels uh, in our soils around 7.5, and then there are some areas that have pH levels of 8, and that's tremendously high. And there are a lot of crops that can uh, tolerate that kind of pH, but what that high pH does uh, is tie up some micronutrients. Iron is one of them. Yeah, we talked about how expensive it can be to use these EDDHA ortho ortho chelates but obviously there's lots of different forms of iron the question that many farmers have is can I fix it in the soil with more iron applications do I have to go foliar because either way it's not necessarily cheap that's right yeah yeah micronutrients for the most part uh, you know are, are represent a major expense for for some fields and so the bottom line is if you've got high pH soils like we do and it's tying up micronutrients like iron, uh, there are some crops you grow that you've got to 
fix that iron situation and that soybeans is one of them for us we we have to grow uh high ph tolerant soybeans and even then we oftentimes will have to come back and add a little bit of iron so there's a couple of ways to address that iron issue for us that number one is try and lower that ph we do that with sulfur and so we do use sulfur out here it lowers the soil ph and then releases uh, some of the the iron that's tied up uh, but that's a temporary fix and sometimes if you're putting sulfur on early and you get an iron chlorosis issue, issue uh, situation later um, you don't have a choice but to come back with some iron over the top and so uh, what we found the plants don't really care whether it gets a foliar or in the soil with a with a granular product but bottom line is there are some crops and some situations where we have to add iron all right, let me ask you about this high pH soil just a little bit. Uh, I, I would assume there's a number of different causes. Uh, does it have anything to do with just the parent material with calcareous soils and lots of free lime, or uh, is it a water quality issue or a drought issue? What what makes that pH so high? Hey, primarily it's our soils. Yeah, we're we have wind deposited soils out here in eastern Colorado. Um, and those soils typically are low in organic matter levels and high in pH. And so that parent material, uh, for the most part, uh, ties up the iron that is in the soil. We can actually measure iron in the soil. It's just not all available. Yeah, that's interesting. I know in some of the fields where we've seen iron deficiency chlorosis show up in soybeans, we've pulled plant tissue tests and it shows there's tons of iron. It's just in the wrong form and our plants can't use it. And that is so frustrating for farmers to know that I've got lots out there. I just can't make it available. So the sulfur that you're talking about, uh, if you're using elemental sulfur, our, our guy, it's not cheap. That's not cheap either. Uh, how much would guys actually put out? Is this something they're putting a little bit out each year, or are they doing a big dose and then hoping to get a few years out of it? Uh, we have to put a little bit out each year, and typically under three pounds per acre of sulfur, but but you're right, is it's an expense that uh, adds up. Um, and so we can lower soil pH, but it's a temporary lowering because the soil has buffer capacity that actually absorbs that sulfur, so the the pH drops temporarily and then comes back up. So we can't put a big sulfur bunch out at one time and expect it to last for years. We're stuck with applying a little bit of it every year. Yeah, it's just something that you've got to manage around. And, and like you said, uh, a lot of times we have parent material in the soil that just is going to be a little bit of a challenge. So there's a lot of positives about farming in Colorado. This is one of the things that might cost a little bit more than some parts of the country. Uh, we've got Ron Meyer on with us right now from Colorado State discussing that. Ron, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. Have a Merry Christmas. Hey, thanks. Good to be with you again. You bet. Let's head over to Montana. Got Clayton Jones on with us right now to talk a little bit about iron. Now, up in Montana, we got a little different situation, a little different soils up there. And, you know, one thing that I thought about today, Clayton, is you got a big football game that Montana State's hosting on Saturday. My South Dakota State Jackrabbits are coming to town. Yeah, we do. Noon on noon on Saturday. This is about as far as the Bobcats have made it in, in recent years. So it's, it's 
pretty exciting for uh, football fans here. Yeah, that is so cool. And so for everybody listening in the South, let me just tell you, Montana State knows how to support a football team. They have sold out that stadium for a December outdoor game. That is amazing. So should be should be a lot of fun up there. Now, I doubt many farmers uh, that are going to that game are going to be talking about iron and their crops and so forth. But, you know, when you look at soil fertility in Montana, I would assume the big ones, NP and K and, and even sulfur, probably get a lot more attention than these micros. They definitely do. And when I see nutrient deficiencies, it's almost one of those uh, for the micronutrient deficiencies are are a lot uh, rarer here than the macronutrients. Yeah, we sure see that uh, in, in a lot of cases. I know when guys are getting just ridiculously high yields, and today saw the National Corn Grower yield results, and gosh, there's guys, well, David Hulo is over 600 bushel corn again. I think that's a whole different stratosphere where uh, you're pulling everything that soil's got. You're pulling everything out, and you probably have to put more stuff back in than a guy getting 30 bushel wheat in dryland Montana farming, but you got a lot of different crops now in Montana. It's kind of getting exciting when you got guys talking about so many different things. Yeah, you know, our pulse pulse acreage has gone up about fivefold in the last uh, 15 years, and pulses, at least when they yield well, do require a lot of micronutrients, as you know, to help with their nitrogen fixation process. Canola acreage has doubled in the last couple of years. That requires a lot of sulfur, and high-yielding crops will require uh, more micros as well. Yeah, it's it's just fun to have some of those different things. And I, I would assume crop rotation has to help, too. I know we're in kind of corn, soybean country primarily here, and I know that we see crops doing pretty well. And in many cases, uh, we can get better yields in those rotated acres than, than a lot of guys are doing in the continuous cropping acres. So getting something in there to, to rotate with those cereals, I would imagine that has to probably help with some of the, the nutrient removal and just what nutrients are even going to be in the soil solution yeah i think i think so um you know we do see better yields of cereals after broad leaves so both pulse crops and oil seeds uh you know there's there's some evidence that the pulses and oil seeds do make those micronutrients more available either by lowering the ph or by releasing natural chelates, which you were just talking about, you know, the the man-made chelates like EDTAs in the previous conversation. Um, so that, that might help uh, a little bit. But overall, I think uh, you're, you're spot on that we have relatively low yields except on our irrigated acreage. And so we're not uh, removing a lot of micronutrients, uh, including iron each year. And, you know, I, I think, too, just getting different crops that are uh, having high nutrient demand at different times of the season. Obviously, Montana has a very seasonal uh weather conditions and, and growing conditions where, where you're definitely going to get cold. You're hopefully going to catch some snow and some moisture along the way, and then definitely can get hot in the summer too. So yeah, it, it's a pretty interesting discussion, no doubt. Uh, I've been been talking with Clayne Jones here at Montana State. Clayne, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Good luck this weekend, and uh, hopefully the weather turns out good too. Yep, sounds good. Take care. You bet. Thanks. Talking about iron on today's program and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD.
it came in waves, ruthlessly eliminating the toughest, hard-to-kill grassy weeds in wheat. Everest 3.0 Herbicide, a new formulation, delivers superior flush-after-flush control of wild oats and green foxtail. And Everest 3.0 is registered for use on yellow foxtail, barnyard grass, Japanese brome, and key broadleaf weeds that can invade your wheat and rob your yields. Ask your retailer about Everest 3.0. Always read and follow label directions. Looking to upgrade your productivity now and take control of your cash flow next season? Check out CanDo Financing on Case IH tractors and hay tools today. Discover amazing rates on the remarkably versatile Farmall, premium comfort Vestrum, and versatile workhorse Maxim tractors. Plus, save on high-capacity round balers and disc mower conditioners. Make this season your most productive yet. What can you do to build a better wheat crop? I'm Darren Hefty. On Tuesday, January 11th, we're holding a free Ag PhD Wheat Agronomy Workshop at the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll be discussing how you can make your wheat crop more profitable by going in-depth on topics such as crop protection programs, seed treatment options, fertility requirements, and ways you can make your crop more resistant to stresses like drought and disease. We'll be covering all this and more, so don't miss the Ag PhD Wheat Agronomy Workshop. Sign up today at agphd.com. And while you're there, check out the other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn and soybeans, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. There is a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. The first name and last word in weed control in heavier, higher organic soil types is Authority Edge Herbicide from FMC. This proprietary combination of actives outperforms the competition, delivering up to 14 more days of residual control. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Authority Edge Herbicide may not be registered for sale or use in all states. Weeds rob you of yield potential, so rob them of the chance to grow with powerful corn herbicide solutions from Corteva AgriScience. Weeds won't know what hit them, but you will. Because you can count on all the top corn herbicide products, including Resicor, SureStart 2, and Keystone NXT, to effectively control weeds, you can spend less time worrying about unwanted yield-robbing plants and power on. Learn more at PowerOverWeeds.com power. Keystone NXT is a restricted-use pesticide. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're talking about a very important nutrient, iron, and how that can play into your crop production plans and potentially help you raise some more yields and make some more money. Our phone lines are open. Excuse me here. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head out to California. We've got our friend Paul Borges with us right now. He's a consultant in California, works with a lot of different crops. Paul, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. How you doing? We're doing pretty good. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about. So when we talk about micronutrients, we just had uh, uh, a university uh, soil fertility specialist from Montana, and he said, man, our yields are low, so we aren't really drawing out too many micronutrients each year. 
how about where the guys have vegetable production and um, crops that we really want to pack full of nutrients? What do you see with micronutrient demand where, where you're working in California? It's about the same. We work on, if we get the, the base close to where, you know, the calcium magnesium where it needs to be and apply those miners as, as they need, never applying the miners with calcium. Like if you're putting a, a limestone or even some gypsum at a certain st- certain amount, it will tie up when you apply those too close to each other. They'll lock up some of that nutrients. So we make sure we build up the base first and then supplement the iron in season with the, with the vegetables. And we've also noticed sometimes we add just a little bit of manganese so we don't overload the plant with too much of one element. Well, I like your comment there about don't apply micros with the calcium or too close to a big calcium application. It's something that we learned from Neil Kinsey. We uh, we had a field that we were putting yep. on a bunch of lime, and we said, man, I don't know what's going on here. We can't get micros into the crop. And Neil said he didn't know anything about the field. He goes, when's the last time you applied lime? You're like, uh, last fall. <laughs> He's like, and how many micros did he put out? Uh just like a quart with our planter. And he's like, yeah, that's not going to cut it. You just put a bunch of calcium out there. It's probably tying up some things. And so when we started looking at it that way, wow, when we're putting a big calcium application, we probably need to put a bunch of micros out, uh, you know, address that soon. Not necessarily, like you say, too close or right with the same application, but a spring application might be well, well called for. Yeah. Usually we'll do foliars, run some in liquid. And then that fall, We'll come back with the mic with the with the micros then at that stage. Depending on how much calcium I put out, might be a, a year later. Just depending on how how much I put out. Yeah, and a lot of times that calcium, I don't, I don't want to scare anybody off from from putting on lime. If you need to put lime out there, it takes a while for that to move down through the soil profile. So you've still got micros that are that are going to be available. It's just uh, you know as that moves down through, you're going to have to to replenish some of those micros. Okay. Uh, another thing you mentioned there is manganese, and I know this is one that that we've we've heard a lot about manganese and iron and wanting to have more iron in the soil than manganese. That isn't always the case. I know we've got a few grid points where we've got manganese higher than iron, but for the most part, we've got iron over manganese. Why is that so important? From what Niels told me, it's it's the you know everything has been the ratios where they need to be. I got fields that are almost even, and they never have that deep green color, and the tonnage is a little less there. But as soon as those two separate and iron gets above the manganese for us, and like for vegetables I'm using as an example, our tonnage goes up and we get a darker, more full green leaf uh, lettuce or you know whichever vegetable we're growing. And it makes a difference if it's the other way around. We add iron in the... And fertigation or foliar, but even though that manganese is still higher, we add just a smidge of manganese with that foliar spray so we don't overload the fences. You know, you mentioned the dark green color with iron, and uh, I talked to a lot of corn farmers that say, man, I love putting some iron on my crop because it makes it look even darker green, and uh, that that just is so attractive. As people are driving by the field, they think I've got something going on here. Does that does that necessarily amount to more yield, or or is it sometimes just a cosmetic thing? 
that's more of a cosmetic, the coloring, but you'll see it in, we weighed boxes from the vegetable fields where we treated and didn't treat. And you could, you, you know, in the boxes, how much more weight we had versus one side towards the other, but that's because it's a vegetable crop and it's easy to do this test and get numbers back fast. But we found more weight in the boxes and, um, you know, you cut them open and you bite the lettuce in the morning. Cut the root off and bite the lettuce, the lettuce on the backside there. You could taste the difference in the in the vegetables. Even uh, people with lawns, I, I actually work with somebody who, not me, uh, but puts puts quite a bit of iron on every year on his lawn. Now, I know there's going to be a point where he finally reaches that breaking point, but <laughs> he's he's always got this dark green lawn compared to his neighbors, and he takes so much pride in that. Uh, do, do you see that being yep. a, a big thing? Is that a sure winner that you're definitely going to see more color every time? Yeah, around here, guys will mix ammonium sulfate with iron, and you want to see green. You want to see grass grow and turn green and be dark. Those two products together will do it. But you know, it's such a small amount we're putting out there. But like anything else, too much of one element will throw the other ones off. Yeah, yeah, you definitely can get things out of balance. There's no doubt about that. And we often talk about just taking a complete analysis. And I, I do find it interesting when, when we talk to folks that say, oh, the micros aren't important, but they are essential nutrients for crop growth and, and play such a big role in so many of the function functions that are happening inside the plant. Uh, how often do you recommend, Paul, does it depend on your crop rotation? How often should guys be testing for all these um, minor or micro elements like, like iron? On our tests here, and the ones we get from Kinsey, we, we ask always for a complete test because sometimes it's the only chance we get to do certain things in the field. If we're going to trees or the rotational crops on dairies, we can hit on and off as they're going in alfalfa. But it's it's important. And they all have, every element has its position and what it does. Just like sulfur. Everybody forgets about sulfur, but sulfur is a big component also in keeping things green and moving the starches through the plant. You know, some of the, the subsoils that we've got in, in our part of the world here in the Midwest, we've got a lot of iron in them. And if we can get a root system down a little deeper in the soil, a lot of times we can grab some of that. And you'll see as we dig root pits, we'll we'll see those big orange blobs in the soil uh, at a couple, two, three feet down. And then after many years of crop production, we don't see them anymore, but we see uh, an increase in levels of iron throughout that profile. Do you see those big iron deposits uh, in California too, when you get down in the subsoil? Oh yeah. No, we do. We dig pits like going into permanent crops. We'll dig a pit to see what it looks like underneath there. If there's a hard pan layer. Uh, And then there's spots here in California. There is no iron. I had a guy with an excavator, we GPSed all the tree rows, and he went with an excavator 12 feet deep to mix that soil to see if he could bring iron up. And after four years of letting it settle and taking it out, it, you know, it barely bumped the iron number of the soil. It was still below what we wanted. Yeah, you always you always kind of wonder about that with some of the the deeper work that gets done. I know here a lot of times we'll run a tile plow, and I've seen guys run a tile plow six or seven feet deep, and sometimes that stirs up some of that. So, yeah, kind of kind of interesting that you would make that comment. We um, we've done a number of different things on the farm, but I wouldn't say we've ever dug in uh, that deep and tried to stir everything up intentionally. But maybe that would fix some of our problems. Sometimes yeah. when you get a high pH or a high salt issue up top. If you just mix the soil up a little bit, you might be in better shape. Yeah, we tried it on that one piece because it 
there's just parts that didn't have any iron. In other places, we go down two feet, we had all the iron we want. So once the roots got there, we were good. But other places, and it's not there's not a lot of them, but there's a few places that will we'll pick up no iron, and we've gone down four feet, and it's still the iron levels down there are low. Yeah, it's kind of fun when you get to work with as many crops as you get to work with. I'm sure that's challenging. It makes the learning curve uh, a lot steeper than a guy raising two or three different crops. But uh, it's always fun talking with you. We're talking with Paul Borges out in California. Paul, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Merry Christmas. Hey, same to you guys. Talking about iron on today's program, but also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844 844- 44 ag phd you can also email us radio at agphd.com. we got a number of emails in again so we'll dive into those in the ag phd mailbag coming up agroliquid is precision crop nutrition that means being committed to product performance to research and field testing and to superior agronomics. Most of all, AgroLiquid is committed to delivering precisely the right nutrition in the right way, including seed-safe planter plus side dress applications and foliar applications with low burn risk. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. If you understood everything on a soil test and could make your own fertility plan, do you think you could cut your farm's fertilizer expenses? Maybe you could increase your yields. Why not both? I'm Darren Hefty. We want to empower you to make your own fertility decisions. That's why we're devoting two full days to our Ag PhD Soils Clinic this year, January 12th and 13th at the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. This could be the most important two days that you spend in your farming career, and it's all free. So register now at agphd.com. While you're there, check out the other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, a tiling clinic, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. There's a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. 
with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about iron in the soil, iron getting into our plants, iron making a difference in crop production and your profitability. We're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We got into a discussion about high pH soils and specifically we're talking about Colorado and I think about uh, Western Kansas and some of the work that Brian Waugh and the guys at AgriLiquid have done out there trying to, to operate in soils that need more calcium and and micronutrients. And so we got Brian to uh, to join us. He's doing a little traveling today. Brian, thanks for being out. We really appreciate it. You bet. You bet. Glad to. Headed up your way, actually. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, the wind is going to blow you this direction, so I, I don't know if I'd want to be in the air today. Man, it's going to be a windy one out there. But uh, talking about calcium, talking about uh, some pH challenges out in soil, and, and then the topic of iron as well. I know you've done a lot of work with calcium in the furrow and in different applications trying to, to make calcium available for plants and getting nutrients into the plant. We need that calcium to be available. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you've done with some of these soils and, and calcium specifically? Well, you know, one of the big issues, uh, I've spent most of my career in Western Kansas, uh, Eastern Colorado, and, and the, the issue there is too much calcium. Um, and to your point, you know, the iron issue that we deal with and, and the chlorosis uh, on soybeans, even down to sorghum as well. Um, when we, the only one thing that I would really recommend guys is take a look at their pH if there's any way to adjust it. Uh, when you've got opportunities to fix drainage, um, you can move some of those nutrients out that are going to keep that iron uh, in the unavailable form and allow it to convert to the ferrous form, which is the plant available form. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. A lot of these problems, uh, it, it depends on where you're at in the country, of course, but but I know a lot of the problems in our geography, drainage can fix things a lot. Uh, Ron Meyer talked about using some sulfur, and our experience has been if we've got good internal drainage through that soil, we can get sulfur to move through and make some changes out there. Otherwise, man, some of these well, iron forms, you get... Even at that... Oh, good. Yeah, even at that, you know, when you look at western Kansas and the, and the low rainfall areas... Uh, you, you know, you've got uh, situations where you're not really able to move those nutrients through the soil profile just because of lack of moisture. So one of the things that we wind up doing is, is in every application, we are using a lot of sulfur. Uh, I was talking to a crop consultant just yesterday in regards to uh, uh, some of the things that we're doing. And, and one of the things that they've seen is, is thiosol, uh, you know, through the pivot with the micronutrients, um, uh, some of the things that AgroLiquid does is we've got iron in almost all of our products. When you look at our nitrogen product, it, it, it incorporates sulfur as well as iron. Our phosphorus product has a little bit of iron in it. So we're always adding a little bit. And so in those high pH areas, we're getting some of the benefit with that along with the sulfur that we're applying. 
you know, the micronutrients oftentimes get forgotten about until there's a problem. And I know you've probably been in the same situation, Brian, where, man, I'm having trouble out here. What's going on? And you go out and you do some testing and you learn, man, what's the last time you put a decent amount of micros out there? We, we talk about some of these more popular micros like iron and manganese and copper and boron. Uh, are there some other ones that are going to be important? I know AgriLiquid's working on, uh, uh, well, really just about any nutrient you could think of, but you're also starting to promote the use of some of these other micros too. Do you think they're going to make a big difference? You know, I think it, it all comes down to economics. And if you can get an economic return uh, on a micronutrient, uh, because that's your limiting factor, we need to be addressing that. Some of the things that we're looking at right now that people might find interesting is molybdenum, uh, cobalt, uh, some of those things that are going to help legume crops um, in the nodulation and, and, and helping the nitrogen fixation. Uh, so those are things that people probably aren't really in tune with uh, that, uh, that they might see as, as the future goes on. Well, there's certainly a lot of talk about nitrogen, and there's a lot of products out there claiming you could reduce your nitrogen rates, those types of things, and certainly getting a lot of interest with the the prices of of nitrogen fertilizer this year. Uh, Brian, uh, one thing I like about AgroLiquid, and I've known for a long time, and I've actually gotten to visit a lot of these research sites, they do so much research. Uh, Has a lot of that data hit your website now from, from 2021 growing season? You know, some of the 2021 is is actually hitting. We're, we're compiling that. You, usually comes in in December and January. You'll start to see it pop up on our on our website as we update uh, the research trials. Um, you know, the one thing that we we're really looking at and promoting is our win rates. You know, I mean, when you take a look at a uh, at a research trial or across large geographies, how many percentage of times are you going to get a yield win? And then, more importantly, what kind of an economic win? And with the changing market prices, that's always going to be something that you're going to be paying attention to. Oh, absolutely. I know you were talking about that this summer at the Ag PhD Field Day, too, just looking at, hey, here's here's where you can win economically on the farm because, frankly, it's it's scary sometimes putting fertilizer out and not knowing exactly, uh, is this how much I need? Do I need a little more? Do I need a little less? Am I choosing the right nutrients to focus on? So those win rates can, can be really helpful as we're making some of these big decisions. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you on here. Oh, one, one last question I've got for you, though, is greening up the crop. Uh, we had a comment earlier on the show that, man, when I put on iron, I can get that dark green color out there in my crop. What do you think about that? Because we definitely see differences as you go field to field and even hybrid to hybrid within a field sometimes. Some just just look dark green. And, and the same thing as you drive through town, you see some lawns that are just dark green. Is this kind of one of those hidden things that might help us catch more sunlight energy and, and photosynthesis? Uh, absolutely. And uh, but, uh, the one thing that I would say, a little quick story in regards to greening up, and I, I heard the uh, comment earlier about iron on lawns. Our green, our, uh, for our greens prior to tournaments, a lot of times our greenskeeper will throw out iron and sulfur right in front of a, uh, do a foliar right in front of a tournament in order to make those greens look nice, dark green, and uh, really show off the, uh, the ability of the greenskeeper. 
Interesting. Yeah, there's all these little tricks that that uh, can help things. Iron is certainly one of those nutrients that, for anyone listening today, that you haven't done much with iron, haven't learned much about iron, uh, that'd be a great place to try it. Try it out on your lawn and see what kind of difference it makes there. Because once you see that, you're going to say, man... Maybe my crop needs some of this. If I got a big response in my lawn, you're probably dealing with roughly the same soils that are in your area uh, for farm ground, too. So you may may look into that. Uh, Brian, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I know you're busy. I know you're traveling today, but sure appreciate the insight and information. Thank you. Have a great day. Bet. You as well. Uh, one other story I had, too, I, I was thinking about it today because uh, I was just looking at the National Corn Growers Yield Contest data, and I saw Kevin Cobb was over 400 bushels on dry land corn. Not quite to the 422 that Francis Childs had, but, man, he's getting awfully close. Uh, and, uh, and you know, everybody's got some different advantages, disadvantages with the, the area, the country that they're in. One of the things that was one of Francis Childs's uh, I, I don't know if it's so much I'd say secrets because he would talk about this, but when you looked in the root pits and you looked down four feet deep in his soil, you saw lots of orange and there was lots of iron deposits down uh, just a little bit deeper in his soil. And Francis said, yep, when we first started farming this, uh, those iron deposits were about a foot higher and our roots got them, spread them out through the soil over years and we're seeing really good iron numbers in our plant tissue tests and in our soil tests. And he said, now I see my roots going down four feet and starting to break down some of those big deposits that are a little deeper in the soil. And when you look at what it takes to grow a good grass crop, iron is a big one. There's no doubt about it. And uh, and his corn looked pretty dark green, too. So it's just one of those things that, that really struck me when I, I first saw that 20 years ago. And I thought, man, iron is something we really got to look at in our crop. I, I know talking to a lot of farmers, not just corn farmers, but in other crops as well, iron has become kind of one of their go-to micronutrients that they know they need a little more iron and they know they're getting a crop response so they continue to put some on. Definitely something to look at on your farm, something that you want to include in your soil tests and your plant tissue tests that you're doing throughout the season. We'll dive into the Ag PhD mailbag coming up right after this. If you've got an agronomic question you want us to include, our email is radio at agphd.com. What's new from New Farm? Leopard Herbicide brings you exceptional planting flexibility for soybeans, field corn, and cotton. Leopard provides your spray plans with a fall or early spring option to boost resistance management. And did we mention it's a highly compatible tank mix partner due to its ultra-low use rate? Ask your dealer for Leopard Herbicide. Available for fall. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. One of the most important things you can do for your farm is improving drainage. Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. On Monday, January 31st, we're hosting a free Ag PhD tiling clinic in the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. 
Whether you've been tiling for years or you're looking to plan your first project, you won't want to miss this event. We have a whole host of information for you, including a legal session with the country's top drainage lawyers, as well as presentations on tile design, lift stations, NRCS guidelines, and ways to approach neighbors and landlords about tiling issues. For more details and to register, go to agphd.com. While you're there, check out the other AgPhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. There's a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people and we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Purchase your dream tractor and save your cash with can-do financing from Case IH. Save on the remarkably versatile Farmall, premium comfort Vestrum, and versatile workhorse Maxim tractors. Plus, discover amazing rates on high-capacity round balers and disc mower conditioners. Upgrade your equipment now and keep your cash flow strong next season. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We've been talking about iron on today's program, and we get so many nutrient questions and soil test questions. Uh, it's always really fun. Hopefully it makes for some good radio along the way, or at least gets you talking about certain nutrients or certain situations on the farm. Judging by the feedback that we've gotten, I, I would say it, it probably has. Uh, but with iron, this is one. I would say we, other than iron deficiency, chlorosis, and soybeans. We don't get a huge amount of iron questions. And uh, as some of the people that have been on the show today have said, it's not like you have to put on 100 pounds of iron every year to have a good crop. But it is certainly something that you should be watching on your farm to see if you get a crop response. All right, we have got some other questions in, so let's address those in the Ag PhD Mailbag. It's the Mailbag! All right. Uh, first one comes from TP who said, you guys talk about compost and you talk about manure sometimes. You've also talked about a product called decomp. What is decomp made from? You talk about that being a natural solution to help improve composting. Hey, thanks TP. We appreciate the question. Yeah. Decomp is a product that we've used on our farm now for a few years and it has a bunch of different microbes in it. So it isn't a straight bacteria or a straight fungi. It's a combination of bacteria and fungal uh, uh, fungal uh, beneficial fungi. That's what I was trying to say. And with all those different microbes in there, they're trying to break down that residue just a little bit faster and convert those nutrients into an available form. We've seen easier composting, uh, more success that way without having to turn the pile 
ideally, uh, like for example, say you've got a feedlot that you're cleaning out, if you spray the decomp on and then scrape all the manure up into a pile, now you've got that decomp mixed throughout the pile. We see it heating up a little quicker. We see the composting process go much quicker. And as you're doing that, you're seeing a lot of that water leave the pile. So you've got a lot less tonnage to haul. And man, that's just been fantastic. It also helps sequester some of those nutrients like nitrogen and sulfur. So you don't have quite as much odor either. But uh, the big thing is you're getting the nutrients available and getting them out to your field so you can utilize those nutrients again sooner, which this year of all years with fertility prices as high as they are, it's a big deal. So in short, the decomp is made from beneficial microbes and bacteria. They're going to help convert manure and compost it and get those nutrients out for your field and for your crops. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. We look for more of those types of products coming. There's just a tremendous demand in that industry for natural solutions. All right. I got this one from Kevin. He said, you covered this on air, but you didn't address uh, how to get the herbicide into common mullen leaves. All right. Common mullen is a weed that we often see in our geography in pastures. It's a biennial weed. It'll start off as a rosette. And then it'll just have a really big, I don't know, three, four foot tall uh, bolt stage that, that pops up with lots of little flowers and seeds. So, yeah, this is this is an interesting wheat. OK, so Kevin's question, how do you get the herbicide into the leaf? There's such a fuzzy nature of the, the leaf texture, especially in this rosette stage that it's just tough to get it in there. He said also the rate of uh, milestone chaparral toward on uh, other options. I'm curious what you guys think. Nozzle sizing and flow rate, droplet size, all those types of things. I'm spraying ditches, pastures, tree lines. My past experience is that this is from Kevin. He said, my past experience, droplets aren't getting in. So I've been using non-ionic surfactant to try to help. All right, Kevin, well, you ask a great question. When we think about weed control. One of the defense mechanisms that a lot of these weeds that we talk about have is they've got really densely hairy leaves. I think about kochia, which is an annual weed, kind of the same way. When you're spraying that small kochia plant, it is so fuzzy that if you look really close after you spray it, you'll see a lot of those droplets being held off by the little hairs and then they just dry up. So in many areas where kochia is a problem, it's in the west. It's in areas that have low humidity, hot weather, and dry conditions. And yeah, a lot of that stuff just evaporates, never makes it in the plant, and we have a tough time controlling kochia. So I would say common mullen kind of falls into that same category. I love that you're trying to address it in year one in the rosette stage. I would always recommend that with biennial weeds. If we can get it in year one, we avoid the bolt stage where it's producing seed. And if we can stop it from going to seed, man, that's that's a, a big win. So what I would do is, is look at that nozzle size and flow rate or droplet size, as you mentioned, and look for some bigger droplets. Now, oftentimes we talk about smaller droplets and getting great coverage. Um, I look at I want to have a, a concentrated droplet, but I want to have a big one. And my thought is that maybe you can overpower some of those little hairs just by sheer volume with a big droplet. I haven't seen research data on that particular thing, but that would be something I'd look at is, is changing up that droplet size a little bit, having big droplets that get on and deliver a concentrated dose. 
Now, I like uh, Chaparral would probably be my choice. I like using about 3 or 3.2 ounces. That's not super cheap. There are some guys that will do 2.5 ounces and mix some 2,4-D with it. If you can kill that weed in the in the rosette stage, that's great. Then you don't have to mess around with it next year. So I like the residual control I get out of Chaparral, especially in a pasture or ditch situation. If I've got a tree line, though, there's where I'm a little bit nervous because when you've got milestone that does have some activity on some trees, it's definitely a good brush killer and chaparral contains milestone and the active ingredient from allies. So I'm a little bit nervous about a tordon or a milestone if I'm real close to the trees. In that case, I might just use straight Freelex, which would be the new 240 choline that doesn't have the volatility concerns that, that you get out of some of the other 240s like amines and esters. But the good news about uh, Freelex is it does have all the weed killing power. So it's going to do a nice job. You don't have the residual control either in the soil, so you don't have to worry about it getting down in the tree roots and hurting things. You just have to worry about not getting it on the trees. So that would be good. The other thing we do see with, with some of these tough weeds, especially in pastures and ditches and, and, like I say, in that western kind of environment, we see guys using oils or uh, surfactants with it to try to to stick things to the, the plants that are really tough and have good defense like common mullein. So you could certainly do that. You could play around with non-annex surfactant or crop oil concentrate as, as the label allows with each of these products. So again, if I'm out away from trees, Chaparral is my favorite product. I'd use 3.2 ounces and spray it that way. If you wanted to cheapen it up, which I'm not a big fan of, you could go to two and a half ounces and add some Freelex with it. But I just go the straight Chaparral. I, I like that product. Thanks for the questions, Kevin. We really appreciate that. I had one come up today, and and this was kind of interesting. Um, got talking again. I was talking with some soybean breeders, and one of the big challenges that they've been fighting has been sudden death syndrome. And Neil Kinsey had made a comment last year when he was here uh, doing a seminar, which, by the way, if you're interested in hearing uh, Neil Kinsey, you like some of the advice that Paul Borges is giving. He works uh, works in that Neil Kinsey system. Uh, Neil will be here in February. You can find all the information and pre-register for that conference at agphd.com. One of the things that Neil had said, is he was asked about sudden death syndrome in soybeans. And he's like, oh, well, have you looked at your soil test to see where your copper levels are above five parts per million? Because where we've seen that, we just haven't had any sudden death. So I, I know these micronutrients are important and copper could be one of the keys in keeping sudden death syndrome out of our crops. But we had some guys this year that were out looking at fields. They said, man, I've got sudden death syndrome. And when we did some checking and we had them investigate a little bit further, they had other things going on besides sudden death syndrome. Now, probably the most common has been brown stem rot in soybeans. And if you've got brown stem rot, I've got a 100% solution for you. You can just pick beans that are completely resistant to brown stem rot. We don't have any complete resistance to sudden death syndrome, although we see a lot of differences in tolerance between varieties. But with brown stem rot, we do have varieties that are 100% resistant. So we, we had this situation pop up. Had a very good sudden death syndrome tolerant bean, and it was resistant to brown stem rot, and we still saw that symptomology out in fields. And I know we had a couple of different plots in the state of Minnesota, but this same phenomenon has been seen in other states. I know in Illinois, I think Illinois is the first to document this. 
but they've seen red crown rot on soybeans. So a different disease that we actually um, had a a soybean breeder that got some ratings because they had so much red crown rot they saw this year. So that's something to watch for where you see some some little red lumps on the crown or around the root or even see the, the first inch or two of the stem being uh, uh, having kind of a reddish color around the outside uh, where the infection is. So anyway, that's something to take a look at. If you've got sun death syndrome, make sure it's not brown stem rot or red crown rot. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.